This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I am so excited today because the last the last time we talked, we, we told everyone that today is the day that we're going to have video, so I am all queued up. I've got my video recording stuff ready. Let's go. <laughs> Well, you know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and men? Um, the totally, the, the goal, <laughs> my intent was that we would do start the hands-on stuff today for the fact flashes. However, I suppose what? one of the absolute benefits and wonderful things of when people write in and ask very specific questions with very specific examples, because we're working off specific material, is you end up getting the mother of all tutorials. <laughs> and we had three more questions we needed to answer, and I thought it was going to go quick, and then we would get right into the, the hands-on stuff. And instead, we have a master class on the stakes and storytelling and how it all comes together with engaging reader emotions. And I don't even know if we will be able to do it all in one session. Well, actually, let's just say if you're listening and thinking this is going to be 20 minutes, it's not. We're prob we're going to run long. Hopefully I can keep this to 45 minutes or less, but it, in my opinion, is going to be one of those like aha light bulb fundamental shifts that you can hold on to as a, a touchstone, sort of like we did with, you know, thought, action, speech, or character in motion. And it's a similar way of approaching the stakes, what they are, why they matter, how they relate to engaging emotion in emotional investment in readers as they head into your story. So that's what we're going to do today, and hopefully we can even get all the way through it. All right. Since we're going to run long, um, we, <laughs> when, <laughs> we'll just ramble on for a bit to, to make it even longer. But a few weeks ago, we did a show on reviews, and that generated a couple of email responses that I you, I will respond to one, and, and you will you will dig into the other one. But I, I thought it was interesting that a show on reviews – would would generate this level of feedback, which was which is very cool. So it's always nice to to hear from listeners. So Carl wrote to both of us um, about the show, and he starts out by saying, "I was curious about Taylor's question. That is, if negative reviews at the top hold for non bestsellers too. And if you remember, we were talking about the idea of negative reviews being voted up to the top at Amazon." And so yes. Carl dug into it a little bit, and he said a couple of examples. Um, he was looking for things that, like, weren't massive bestsellers. Um, the first one he sent in, 
Um, and I don't know that this wasn't a massive bestseller, but they weren't the examples that that we gave or that I that I gave. Uh, but the first one was called uh, 56 Days by Catherine Ryan. And the the reviews overwhelmingly are positive. The overall review uh, on the rankings is 4.1 out of 5. And the first page of reviews is, I'm going to go from the bottom and work my way to the top. Five star, 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 four star, five star, five star, five star. And the top review, one star, dull and confusing. (laughs) (laughs) And it was voted to the top because 64 people found this healthy. And then Carl talked a little bit about um, the algorithm and and how it all works with with reviews. And he didn't really see any correlation between bad reviews and then bad things happening with the with the algorithm. But it was very cool of, of him to go in and 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 do his own research and um, kind of track uh, with what we were talking about. And he concludes by saying, thus the basic premise you described of someone posting a negative review for whatever reason, and then often haters piling on, thus making the top review look pretty sound. Uh, but I don't see there's an algorithmic preference for negative reviews in general. Thank you, Carl, for taking the time to do that and for emailing us. We appreciate it. So much. Uh, Nancy also wrote to me and uh, she she was commenting on several different uh, topics that we've discussed in the last couple of months, but one of them was the issue of reviews as well. And she mentioned that the librarian who leads their book group has a tendency or a preference for checking the three-star reviews because they tend to be more even-handed. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and I, I tend to agree too on that, and which is why I I think what initially triggered this conversation way, way, way back when was when I had said that uh, a good three-star review can do more to benefit your book in the long term with convincing readers that it's worth their while than a rash of glowing five stars, at least in terms of when you have more than just one review, like to balance it out. When people that are looking for uh, the average have a tendency to check the three stars. And I do as well when I'm like looking at products to try and get a sense of, you know, the good and the bad. I don't want just the glowing stuff by people who just are like, didn't take the time to think about it. I want to know what doesn't work too before I, you know, so yeah, totally in on that, the whole three star check that. And if you want to be helpful to an author without causing problems and you didn't totally enjoy the book, write a really good three-star review highlighting all the stuff you did enjoy and then the few things that maybe other readers may or may not appreciate as small little negatives. And that would probably be the way to go. With that being said, Taylor, we've got a lot of material to get to, so take it away. Okay, so... This would be considered a hack the craft episode. Even though we're not doing hands-on, this is a deep dive. What are the stakes and why do they matter? So this began as an attempt to answer three questions about evoking emotion in the reader. Each of those questions approached the subject of evoking emotion through the lens of the stakes. And 
talking about one thing, evoking emotion, by talking about another, the stakes, that's only going to work if everybody's already on the same page about what both things actually mean. And since anyone who's been listening to this show for any length of time probably already has a fairly well-grounded understanding of why engaging reader emotion is such an integral part of storytelling and why we would even be talking about that in the first place. And since we've never done a deep dive on the stakes before, I figured for this, we're going to focus on the stakes and what they are and why they matter first. And then from there, we'll go into answering the questions about evoking emotion. So to do this, the first thing we need to do is establish a baseline understanding of what, quote unquote, the stakes are. And that's because in itself, without any context, the term the stakes can be incredibly vague. And it's really difficult to address a topic specifically or to answer questions directly when we're dealing with vagueness. And what I mean when I say the stakes as a term is somewhat vague is, let's say you are out furniture shopping with a friend. And let's say your friend spotted an object behind you. And they said, hey, what do you think about that lavender love seat over there for the living room? When you hear that phrase, lavender love seats, lavender love seat, even without turning, even without seeing what they're referring to, you'd know what they were talking about. You might not know the exact length or the shape or the texture of the seat. And, you know, the exact shade of lavender might be an open question. But love seat and lavender are both concrete enough as terms that even without looking, you'd immediately know if either of those would be anywhere close to your expectations of what you're hoping to buy when you're furniture shopping. So if you're looking for dark neutral tones, lavender is an immediate nope. And if you were looking for a corner couch that could seat five, then a love seat is also a nope. And you didn't have to see it to know what they're talking about. And you kind of get the point there. If you were sitting at a table, or let's say you and I were sitting at a table and we were talking about writing, and I said, hey, what do you think about the stakes for this story? Unless you're a mind reader, the only way you'd even be able to know what I was asking was if I'd already defined what those stakes were for you. And even then, you'd still have no basis for offering an opinion unless you also knew the story itself and how those stakes related to the story. So in that sense, the term the stakes is vagueness pretending to be precise. In general, we tend to use that term as sort of an understanding for what is at stake for this particular person in this particular place and time under these circumstances, or looking at another way, we see the stakes as shorthand for what is driving this character to make these choices and what will happen if she or he fails. So in other words, it's this general placeholder for stuff that matters. But What the stuff is and why it matters and to whom and how much, that all has to be defined before it has any practical, tangible meaning, which means that unless you personally know what that stuff is or you have something specific or concrete in mind when we go into a discussion of the stakes, it's sort of just this hazy placeholder thing 
And so instead of this discussion being concrete and offering you a really specific thing that you can take away from the conversation and then immediately apply it to your own work, you've just got this sort of hazy understanding to work with. And we didn't really solve the problem. So what I'm going to attempt to do here is create a baseline definition for the stakes that's simple, easy for your brain to convert into something tangible, and that will apply straight across the board in any given scenario. But to do that, <laughs> I've got to go back where it's even further and take a, and take a look at what story is. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning, right? Build from the ground up. So what is story? And for this, I uh, this is a definition that I've kind of cobbled together from reading tons and tons of other people's definitions and dictionary definitions, trying to break it down and then condense it and make it as most concise as concise as possible. And so at its most basic, a story is an event or a series of events with a clearly defined beginning and ending that is recounted or told for the purpose of informing, interesting, like gaining the interest of, or entertaining an audience. So don't worry, we're gonna hear all of that again multiple times. But. So for a story to exist, basically, there needs to be one, an event, or a connected series of events with a beginning and an end. It doesn't matter if the event is true or fit, false, it can be fiction, nonfiction, the key here is that there can only be a story if something happens and that all of the events, assuming there's multiples, but even within an event, it's still connected by lots of smaller things, that an event or the events within it, that they are connected. So if something happens to a person and then later the day, that day something else happens to that person, but the two things are not connected, that is not a story. The second thing is a recounting or a telling of the event. So the story has to be recounted or told for it to be a story. How that recounting is done is also irrelevant. Writing, telling, showing, acting, singing, it all counts. It has to be articulated, in other words. And third, it needs to be recounted or told for the purpose of informing, interesting, or entertaining an audience. The audience might just be the person who's doing the recounting. In other words, you could just create a story just for yourself and never intend for anybody else to hear it, but you're the audience. So without any audience, a story can't exist. But what's this thing about the interesting and the informing and the entertaining? Why? Why is that part of this? And that's because if the recounting or the telling of the event or a series of connected events isn't at least intended to be interesting, informative, or entertaining, what's the point of it existing at all? Because if it isn't at least intended to hit one of those things, no one, not even the person who's doing the recounting, is going to stick around long enough to get to the end. So it's never going to have an end, so it's not a story. Okay, so that's our foundation for story. And what we're going to do here is we're just going to accept that it's a duh given that for a story to exist, there needs to be someone to recount it and someone to hear it. And we're going to just set those aside because duh, and we're going to focus on the part that deals with the actual content, 
which is an event or connected series of events with a clearly defined beginning or an end. That's our starting point. And for the sake of this discussion, we're going to refer to that part, the events, the connected series events, as something happened. And you might see where I'm going with this right by now because a more familiar term for something happens is plot. Okay, so if we accept that the issues of our narrator and our audience are givens, and if we're to attempt to present what's left of that definition as an equation, it might look something like plot equals story. But that fails to account for an un enormous unspoken bit of detail, which is that in this universe, under our laws of physics, the only possible way for an event or a series of connected events to be recounted at all is if there was an observer to witness or experience those events as they happened or piece, together, piece them together after the fact. So, in other words, while there may still be some debate on whether trees falling in forests make a sound when no one's around to hear them, as far as stories are concerned, without an observer, the event might as well as never have happened. So while our very basic definition of story doesn't require an observer, it would be impossible for the event or series of events to be related all without one. So a story needs an observer. And that observer can be anything. It can be a person, an animal, a place. Just so long as if the observer is not a person, it's anthropomorphized enough to give voice to whatever has happened. And a more familiar term for observer, you might see where I'm going with this now, is character. So if we were to rewrite our definition of story to accommodate these extra facts, we could say that story is the recounting or telling of something that happened to someone for the purpose of interesting, informing, informative, I don't know how to use that word properly in this context, or entertaining an audience. And if we were to attempt to represent story as an equation that accounts for how things work in this universe with our laws of physics, we'd get something to closer to plot plus character equals story. But that's not quite right either, because story is the recounting or telling of something that happened to someone for the purpose of being interesting, informative or entertaining to an audience. And the way that an audience shows you that a story is interesting, informative, or entertaining is by paying attention. So if I told you that today John went to the park, met a friend, had lunch, spent the rest of a beautiful afternoon walking around the lake, and went home, I have technically told you a story about John. We have a series of connected events, that's our plot, plus an observer to experience the events, that's the character, therefore story but is not an interesting, informative, or entertaining story. Unless you happen to be John Stalker, in which case you might very well find the details of John's very mundane and boring day quite interesting, informative, and entertaining. But in that case, John's very mundane and boring day isn't the whole story, is it? So John went to the park, met a friend, had lunch, spent the rest of a beautiful afternoon walking around the lake, and then went home. No one is paying attention to that story, except for maybe John Stalker. But if we were to throw in an unexpected rainstorm that causes John to miss meeting his friend for lunch 
And follow that with John's desperate realization that because he missed meeting his friend, he's now lost a once-in-a-lifetime chance to tell the woman he loves what she means to him. And if we follow that with John's frantic search to find the friend so that he doesn't lose this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, well, now our attention is piqued. If the story is told well, we'll want to stick around to find out if John can find his friend or find another way to tell the woman he loves what he's feeling. Maybe now we also want to know who the woman is and why she means so much to John and why this meeting was once in a lifetime. Or for that matter, maybe we want to take a better look at John and figure out who he is. It's the same story, really, but we've added an element, and that element is called conflict. Conflict is what makes stories informative, interesting, and entertaining. And if we were to write out the equation for an interesting, informative, and entertaining story, it would look more like character plus plot plus conflict equals story. That's something we're all familiar with. And what does any of it have to do with the stakes? Well, as it turns out, a whole lot of everything. So we've established that for a story to be informative, interesting, or entertaining, it must have conflict. Stakes are a subset of conflict. Actually, stakes are the most important subset of conflict. And in some stories, particularly character-driven stories, stakes are the be-all, end-all of conflict. So what are stakes exactly? The easiest, simplest way to define stakes in a way that will allow our brains to convert something vague and intangible into something specific and concrete is this. Stakes are the negative consequences of failure. So using our little story example, If John fails to find his missing friend, it will bring about the negative consequence of losing a once in a lifetime opportunity to tell the woman he loves what she means to him. And if John is never able to tell the woman he loves what she means to him, it will result in the negative consequence of, well, that's going to depend on who John is and what he wants and why this woman means so much to him, won't it? We don't know those details because we don't yet know John as a character. And we don't know John's particular story. But even without knowing all of that, we already know that the negative consequences of failure are the only reason we care what happens to John in the first place. In the same way that it is not possible to have an interesting, informative, and entertaining story without conflict, it is also not possible to have one without stakes. So, key idea here. Conflict is why we pay attention. Stakes are why we care. Stakes can only exist if two critical elements are in place. A character must want or need something, and there must be meaningful costs, negative consequences, for failing to get and achieve that thing. If the negative consequences for failure are low, the stakes will be low. If the negative consequences are high, the stakes will be high. Two key takeaways. If the character in the story doesn't want or need anything, the story has no conflict. If there are no negative consequences for the character's failure to get or achieve the thing that she or he wants, the character has no stakes. So it's important to note here that it is not the size or the scope of the negative consequences for failure that determine the stakes. Rather, 
It's the size or scope of the negative consequences on the character. In other words, how much it matters to the character that determine the stakes. If the negative consequences for failure are high to that character, the stakes are high. If the consequences of, for failure are low, the negative, I should say, consequences to failure are low for that character, the stakes are low. But this isn't a matter of life and limb per se. It's a matter of desperation and want and need. So yes, it will make you pretty desperate to not fail if the cost of failure will mean losing a hand. But a person might be even more desperate to right a wrong or find an answer to where they came from or solve an unsolvable puzzle or earn respect or learn how to protect themselves. It's how much the thing matters to that character and what the character feels and believes that failure will cost them that determines the stakes. So let's use John from our story above as another example of how this might work in real life. Let's say that the reason John is rushing to meet his friend for lunch isn't for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to tell the woman he loves what she means for him, but rather to get critical information to help stop a dirty bomb from blanketing a city in radioactive material. Fallout. And let's say the woman John loves lives in the city that's about to get hit, and John is very much aware of this. John might never openly admit it. In fact, the sentiment may not ever even arise. But there's no doubt that John's motivation to do whatever it takes to stop this bomb from blanking the city in radioactive material is driven as much, if not more, by his desire to save the woman he loves than it is to save hundreds of thousands of people he doesn't know and has never met. So in this example, John has two sets of stakes, save the city, save the woman he loves. Which set of stakes is higher? If we look at only the size and scope, well, the negative consequences for failing to stop the bomb, they're enormous compared to the negative consequences for failing to save just one person. The negative consequences of failing to save the woman John loves will really only matter to the people who care about her. But in this scenario, it so happens that John cares about her enormously. And so for him, the negative consequences for failing to save the city are probably equally weighted with the negative consequences for failing to save the woman he loves. If he saves the city, but fails to save her, he's still failed. If he saves her, but fails to save the city, he's also still failed. And that is how multiple stakes are used to set up multiple layers of conflict. You cannot raise the stakes of a story just by making the negative consequences bigger or worse. To raise the stakes, the negative consequences have to be bigger or worse to that character. They have to matter to that character in a deep and personal way. And a large generalized loss is never going to mean as much as a loss that is deeply personal. And that is why a quiet story of love and tragedy involving only two people can feel far more intense and way larger than an explosive story in which, oh, ho, hum, here we go again, an entire city is at stake, and here is the only one who can save it, our hero. So if we're to attempt to represent all of that as an equation, it might look something like character multiplied by desire 
then multiplied again by the negative consequences of failure equals stakes. Makes a lot more sense when you see it written out. But you know how you put brackets around things in an equation when you want to do that part of the equation first? That's character multiplied by desire. And then we multiply that again by the negative consequences of failure, and that gives us stakes. So an important aside to this is a given character might not always know what it is that she or he wants or needs and might not even be aware of all the negative consequences for failure. What matters is that the audience knows. In scenarios where the character isn't aware, you as the narrator, the creator, the recounter, you have to create equivalent substitutes for that desire. And this usually means setting up the negative consequences so that the audience cares about the outcome on behalf of the character. It's a whole different form of storytelling. But I just wanted to make sure that that's looped in on this as well. So the more your audience is emotionally invested in the character, the more it's going to matter to them if your character succeeds or fails. And the more it matters to your audience, the deeper and richer and more compelling the reading experience will be. Stakes are a critical component for engaging emotional investment. If a character doesn't want or need anything, and there are no looming negative consequences for failing to get or achieve that thing, why should the audience care what happens to them? So as a general rule, when the stakes are low, audience emotional investment is also low. And when the stakes are high, audience emotional investment is also high. But this is not always true. Key takeaway point, if you attempt to engage emotional investment by using stakes alone, you will fail. A longer and slightly messier way of articulating that is to say, if you attempt to make the reader care what happens to the character only by emphasizing and focusing on the stakes, you will fail. Stakes are only one of two crucial components required to engage emotional investment. Vanessa Michael Monroe's yearning for peace is a good example of an unexpressed want or need with a low negative consequence for failure that helps to illustrate this, illustrate this point pretty well. So Monroe's yearning for peace is never explicitly stated. And exception, with the exception of the story I'm working on now, off-the-page events that lead to the opening of the story that I'm working on now, it's never been something she's actively pursued. In fact, the more immediate needs and wants and the accompanying stakes that arise with each story often take her further and further away from obtaining this unspoken desire. It really only exists beneath the surface. It occasionally breaches during moments of crisis and we catch glimpses of its reflection in her own self-reflection. How much pain could she endure before she broke for good is essentially, I think it's maybe been articulated exactly like that a couple of times. So in spite of these stakes never really being articulated and not even being a core element of any given story, we do understand them intuitively, and we also understand that the negative consequences for failing to obtain them is pretty low, at least in the immediate sense compared to everything else that's going on in the story. We don't really care about those stakes because they're not critical to what's happening. And so it would be really easy to assume that with the desire being unarticulated, with it not even being part of the story and the stakes for failing to obtain that desire being so low in any immediate sense that the audience's emotional investment in the outcome would also be low, but the opposite is true. And the reason for that is the same reason it's possible for stakes to be very high and very personal to the character, 
their life, their family, an entire city, maybe a whole planet, and still generate very little emotional investment in the outcome. And that reason is a failure to deliver on the second critical component required to generate emotional investment. And that second critical component is character. How any given part of the audience feels about a given character will directly control their given emotional investment in the outcome of that character's stakes. The more an audience connects with or resonates with a character, the higher their emotional investment will be relative to the stakes. It's important to note here, though, that connection and resonation are not the same things as liking or relating to. The audience does not have to like the character for emotional investment to engage, but I mean, liking the character does certainly help. The audience doesn't have to even be able to relate to the character or to the character's stakes, although that does certainly help as well. Key takeaways. The key to triggering connection and resonance is empathy. And the key to triggering empathy is authenticity. So the closer you are able to get your characters to feeling real, alive, and fully human, the more your audience will be able to emotionally empathize with them and the more they will emotionally invest in the outcome. When characters are flat or feel inauthentic, when there's no resonance and the audience can't find a way to connect, it is very, very difficult for them to care what happens to that character, no matter how high the stakes are or how high, how much they matter to that character. Basically, the audience becomes detached. They've got little emotional investment in the outcome. And if we were to attempt to express all of this in equation, it might look something like stakes plus connection to the character equals emotional investment. So clearly, engaging emotional investment is our goal. But let's not forget that emotional investment period is what we're after not a particular type of emotional investment. So generating hate is just as worthy as generating love. And the same holds true for fear and hope, happiness and sorrow, and on and on it goes. So when we're speaking of emotional investment, the only bad outcome is indifference. And a good example of a character that generates that negative emotion would be like Cersei in Game of Thrones, or even worse, King Joffrey and hate him, but we are engaged and emotion, emotionally invested because we are waiting to find out what happens and hoping to high heavens that some, it will be something bad. So the opposite of that, caring, is indifference. That is your only bad outcome. And as we've already learned, the way an audience shows that a story is interesting, informative, or entertaining is by paying attention. So indifference is the opposite of paying attention. And so with all of that in mind, now we're going to look at these three questions. Question number one, is evoking emotion in the reader more than conveying the stakes? Yes. That's it, that's the answer. I do not have to explain it because I already have. Question number two, is it better to remind the reader of the stakes in the heat of battle, or just prior, like on the way to the parking lot, 
Or is it better to leave the stakes implied and not be so in your face about it? So this is a very multi-layered question with a lot of possible answers. And I'm going to try and break it down into smaller bits by rephrasing the question. First, do we need to remind readers of the stakes at all? So as with everything else, this is going to depend. It depends on your story and where you're at in the story, how many stakes are in play at that particular point in the story. It depends on how driven the character has been by any given set of stakes up to that point, how aware the reader is of those stakes, how often we've already been reminded of them. So if, for example, the scene in question involves a different set of stakes than those that have been driving the character for most of the story, then yes, absolutely a reminder is going to be necessary. Without one, the character's actions are going to feel incongruent, maybe even forced, they're not going to make a lot of sense. Not good. But if we've only recently been reminded of them, then another reminder again so soon, it might feel like we're having it shoved in our faces. So obviously there's going to be a whole range of scenarios going on that fits in there somewhere. And it's not really possible to try and answer each one of them individually. So the right way is whatever is right for the story. My own general rule of thumb is, when in doubt, remind by giving us the character's frame of mind. So for this to work and not feel contrived, the reminder has to be triggered by and directly connected to something that is happening right then and there in real time. And it can only exist if it's serving a purpose beyond being a reminder. So in other words, just like every scene has to serve a purpose, which is revealing character, enhancing conflict, or moving the plot forward, this maxim also applies to every element within the scene, and that includes reminders of what's at stake. So again, my general rule of thumb is when in doubt, remind the audience by giving them the character's frame of mind, which is just basically articulating what the character is thinking right then. And it's, guide, it's, it's going to be triggered by something that's happening right there in the moment. The second thing is if we do need to remind the reader of the stakes, oh, sorry. The second part of the question is if we do need to remind the reader of the stakes, is it better to do so in the heat of battle in other words, in that very moment when the stakes are going to matter most, or to create that, that reminder at some point leading up to the heat of the battle. And my general rule of thumb is to always reveal information when it matters. And to me, this means revealing a character's frame of mind at the point of decision. I guess another way of saying at the point of decision is at the point where what's in their mind leads them to act and puts them in motion. So in a scenario where the character's frame of mind is what leads to the heat of battle, well, the point of decision would be in advance because that's going to be what took them there. In a scenario where a character's frame of mind changes within the heat of battle, then the point of decision would be whenever that, whatever, ha what happened to trigger that change happens. If the character realizes something that connects directly to the stakes, then the point of decision would be that moment of realization and so on and so on and so forth. So the key and critical point about revealing any type of information, including reminding your audience of the stakes, is that the character's frame of mind, the reveal, whatever it is, 
It must, one, directly connect or be the result of what is happening right there in that moment. And two, it must then, in turn, directly connect or lead into whatever the character does next. So in other words, whenever you reveal a character's frame of mind, which ideally should be frequently, since that's the only way we can understand what the character's thoughts and choices are leading them to do, the information revealed must act as a bridge to connect the actions and events that trigger the thought to whatever the character thinks and does next. They can't just be floating out there, just sort of randomly info dumping on your audience. And the third part of rephrasing this question is, if we do need to remind the reader of the stakes, is it better to leave those stakes implied and not be so in your face about them or to explicitly state them? So there's this rule of thumb bit of craft advice that says never state what can be implied. And I suspect, certainly, it is my own preference as well to imply versus state whenever possible. But the operative word in that rule of thumb is can. Never state what can be implied because not everything can be implied and not every author has the skill to be able to imply uh, in a way that reads correctly. It takes time. It takes experience to learn how to imply in a way that allows the full impact to be felt and understood. And sometimes it takes a while to fully grasp what implying actually looks like in practice. So he felt hungry is a statement of hunger. He found it difficult to avoid looking at the basket of apples and just as difficult to avoid grabbing one is hunger implied. So between the two, the implication clearly provides a whole lot more of everything, including a tangible sense of reality, but it also requires a whole lot more words And sometimes, in the heat of the moment, you just don't have the time or space to go all out for implication. So in those instances, when there's just not space to wordify your implications, my preference is to turn the thing I'm trying to avoid stating, so in this case that would be hunger, into the object of the sentence instead of the character being the object of the sentence. So here it might look something like, hunger consumed him, is saying the same thing as he felt hungry. It's still a statement of hunger, but because the focus is on the thing and not how the character feels about the thing, the weight of how that information is perceived changes. I don't really know why. I haven't had a chance yet to fully comprehend or articulate the psychology of why it is. It just is. So when you're in a situation where you want to imply but don't have the space, try changing the object of the sentence and see if that helps. The third question here is, obviously, each character has a different stake in the outcome of the fight. Is it better to focus just on the stakes for the point of view character or to expand them to everyone? Especially, and the story we're speaking about here specifically is a single point of view story. The answer, it's going to depend entirely on how the story has been written and told up to that point. It's going to depend on who the other characters are, how much the reader cares about them relative to the point of view character. It will also depend on where you're at in the story because that's going to determine how much the reader already knows and how well they know it. My general rule of thumb is 
only include what matters. It's up to you to decide what the what in what matters means. And if you decide this, and you decide this by knowing your characters and knowing your story and knowing where you would like to focus your audience's emotional investment. Remember, stakes plus character equals emotional investment. So when you set out multiple stakes in a single scene, you're diluting that emotional investment. You're dividing it up. Each stake is taking a portion of it. So when you set out multiple stakes for multiple characters in a single scene, you're going to dilute that emotional investment exponentially by splitting it among stakes and characters. So in a story where you only have a single point of view character, and that point of view character is the focus of your story, the immediate sense is that you'd be better served by keeping the stakes focused on just that character. But let's say that part of what inures us to that point of view character is her love and concern for a friend who is also in this same scene. And let's say that her love and concern for this friend is in conflict with her own wants and needs. Well, in that case, the friend stakes essentially become part of the point of view character stakes and should be included because that's giving us the full picture of what's really at stake, this conflict between the two. You can't give her what she needs just because you love her and then lose what you want without there being negative consequences for you. All of that gets weighed. All of that is part of the stakes. And the more you've got going on, the more difficult it is to articulate it, especially in the middle of an action sequence. And the more divided that emotional investment's going to be. So if you've got characters in that scene whose stakes don't actually matter there in the moment, why dilute that emotional investment just to keep the readers updated? Your job would be to make sure they know everything they need to know leading into the scene, and those stakes would then be implied from previous knowledge, and you don't have to go out of your way to dilute it just to keep other people informed. You want to do that work up front. This might change if it was a single point of view story that focused on characters other than the single point, than the point of view uh, narrator. So The Great Gatsby, for example, that's an example of a story in which the narrator is the only point of view character, but the story isn't really about the narrator at all. And that would be an example of a story in which you've got a single point of view, but it focuses on other characters besides that point of view. And the answer would change yet again if you had a multiple point of view story in which more than one point of view character was inside that scene. That's different than a single point of view story with multiple characters inside the scene. So my gut instinct for my own stories is still to focus the stakes on whatever the point of view character is in that moment. But depending on circumstances, depending on if it benefited the story overall, I might also bring in the point of view character's awareness of the other person's stakes as a mechanism for heightening tension. So in other words, if they were both chasing or wanting the same thing, I might bring in the other character's stakes as a way to heighten tension by raising the odds of failure raising the conflict between them, however it worked for that story. And then sometimes other character stakes get introduced by implication as a matter of course. So the doll has a really good example of this. Near the end of the story, Monroe returns to the underground lair where she was once held, 
And what she sees when she arrives, it's enough for her to know that there are now other young women down there. And the stakes for each of those young women is immense. But at this point in the story, we don't even have to say a single word about what those stakes are. We don't even have to mention that the stakes exist at all. Because enough has happened that the very fact that those girls show up on the page at all is enough to know that the stakes have just gone up for everyone, including Monroe. So we feel her own stakes rise through her frustration, the sense of feeling trapped, this acute awareness, fear even, that these young women women are ready-made hostages, that their presence might force her to act against her own best interest and foil what she's setting out to do. We know all of this entirely through context, without a single word being spent on expressing the negative consequences for failure due to everything in the story that's come before. And that's the ideal form of implication. And it takes place on multiple levels. But not every story can accommodate that. And so all the other variables aside, the underlying concept that should be driving your decisions about what stakes to include and how to include, how to include them is this. Stakes plus character equals emotional investment. You figure out where the emotional investment should go and you have your answer. And that's all I got. So let me just say this is this happens every so often where we'll there will be an episode and I think to myself, oh, I'm really glad I get to edit and produce this episode because then I get to hear it again. And while I was while I was thinking that during while I was listening to Taylor this time, I was also thinking then once it releases as a podcast, I'm ha- I'm going to have to go out for a walk and listen to it again. And then maybe I will be able to absorb all this information because that was a lot. It was a lot. And I would apologize, except guys, if you knew how much time it took me to put this together and the actual value of what it is, there's no reason why I should be apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the value is obviously immense. And there's, it's just there's so much of it. I'm, I've got three pages of notes, and um, but most of it is just like references to go and listen again in this one section rather than because you were there's so much information. I, I couldn't take a complete note that would actually tell me anything. It was just, all right, go back and listen again here. So obviously the end goal here is to have all of this information put in as part of the whole hack the craft project that I've only been talking about for a billion years. Um, and it would be broken down far easier to follow, uh, go at your own pace and in a much more visually <laughs> appealing format than what a podcast can provide, <laughs> but that's a one day. Um, so, so for now, this is what we've got. And it was great. So thank you very much for all of that. Um, And we have run incredibly long. So I'm just going to say thank you guys very much for listening. We will be back with you next week and perhaps with video. (laughs) Thanks so much for being here, guys. See you next week.